Welcome to a special episode of Amplify. Today's episode is an update to the COVID-19 episode released earlier in the month. In fact, today we're bringing you a one-on-one interview with Dr. Andrea Duca, who is an emergency physician working in Milan. He completed his training in 2016 and had the opportunity to do a portion of his emergency medicine residency at Mount Sinai here in the United States. And the reason we're interviewing him is because of his unique experience as an emergency physician on the front lines in the middle of this epidemic in Italy. We covered a lot of topics in this interview, and they're all very relevant to our practice in emergency medicine here in the United States. But before you take a listen, take a deep breath, make sure you've got some time to spend with this audio and that you're not stressed before you begin. It's a very, very stressful scenario in Italy right now. And if you're home or around your children and this audio is accessible to them, this may not be the best segment or episode to let them hear. And so without any further delay, here's Dr. Duca. Okay, uh, I'm, my name is Andrea Duca and I'm an emergency physician. Uh, I live in Milan, Italy. And I work in uh, Ospedale Papa Giovanni XXIII in uh, Bergamo. Uh, I got specialized uh, uh, in 2015. Uh, And during my residency, I spent four months uh, at Mount Sinai, thanks to Dr. Jagoda. I I think that, that was one of the most useful experiences that I got during my residency. All right. So let's start with, uh, so thinking back to the, when the epidemic finally hit Italy uh, and you were in the early stages, can you remember uh, what your typical shifts were like and, and how many cases were coming in and how you were identifying those in the beginning as opposed to where you are now? Yeah, I, I remember it well because uh, in the beginning, uh, we saw just a few patients uh, coming back from China uh, or meeting, having met people coming back from China, uh, but they were just a few. Uh, we screened them uh, in the triage area. And uh, if anyone was coming from China with fevers or respiratory symptoms, uh, they were sent to the isolation room and then evaluated there. But but it, it was just a few patients. And then I remember uh, uh, I went to, to do night shift uh, and I had fevers. Uh, uh, I had cough and fevers. You but did? There was, I did, yeah. Ah, okay. Uh, but, I, but, I, but I had to work that night. And coming back in the morning, uh, I listened to the radio uh, saying uh, COVID is in Italy. There is a, a COVID case uh, in Italy. Um, and, and I thought, I'm lucky that it, it's pretty far from here. It, it was about 50 kilometers from uh, Milan. So uh, it, looked, it looked like uh, uh, it was uh, one patient who met uh, uh, another guy coming back from China. So uh, it looked as something isolated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem was that in the next days, we discovered that uh, COVID uh, was already in Italy since uh, many days. 
So uh, we found a lot of new cases. Uh, and in, in the next days, more and more people started to come to the emergency department, uh, even though uh, they had only mild symptoms, like uh, upper airway symptoms or some fevers. So uh, we already, uh, we, we just had to screen them uh, to ask them if I had any um, trip to China or to Codogno, which is the first city involved. Uh, and we, we, we were not afraid at that point. When you were coming across these patients, were you testing them or just screening them by vital signs, you know, fever and travel history? Well, we tested only the uh, patients coming from China or from uh, uh, Codogno area at that time. And those tests were available in hospital or you had to send them to a government lab of some sort? We had to send them away, yeah, at the time. We had to send them to uh, one hospital in Milan and one hospital in Rome to have uh, a confirmation of the test. Uh, but. Mm, we really uh, admitted uh, just a few patients in that case. Uh, the problem came uh, around uh, the 27th or 28th uh, of February, uh, where uh, a lot of patients started to come uh, with lower respiratory symptoms and fevers. Uh, so we had to start to admit more and more patients. And uh, uh, the week after, uh, I think about like in the first days of March, the, the number of patients with lower respiratory symptoms uh, rised up. Uh, so uh, by now we are admitting about 80% of the patients coming to our emergency department because of uh, bilateral pneumonia. Ah, so I was going to ask now, when you say lower respiratory symptoms, you mean so pneumonia, hypoxia, some respiratory yeah. distress, those kinds of things? Exactly. By now, 80% uh, of the patients coming to the emergency department are hypoxic on room air. So they need some form of oxygen. And within these patients, about 30% Needs some form of uh, ventilatory support. Wow. So the numbers are huge. And what percentage of your daily volume is COVID patients as opposed to you know, chest pain and abdominal pain, appendicitis, routine things? Luckily, uh, clean patients decreased a lot uh, because a patient without uh, severe symptoms are not coming anymore to the emergency department. And uh, there, there was a change of organization of uh, the stroke network, the STEMI network and the trauma network in our region. So uh, we are one of the trauma center of the level, level one trauma center of Lombardy and the only pediatric trauma center of Lombardy. Uh, but in this time, trauma patients are not coming anymore to our hospital. Stroke patients are not coming to our hospital. They are sent to other hospitals within Lombardy. 
So uh, by now, I, I have to say that uh, COVID uh, flow is about 90% of what we do in, in the AG. And are the COVID patients being preferentially sent to your facility if we know that they're febrile or shortness or have shortness of breath or other symptoms that might be suspicious for COVID? Are you the receiving facility for that population? Uh, probably it, it started like that. But by now, all of the hospitals around Bergamo are full of COVID positive patients. Uh, they decided to um, have one hospital admitting all the COVID patients, which is in Seriate, near Bergamo. Uh, but I think it, it was enough just for one or two days. By now, we have about four, 480 patients admitted for COVID in our hospital. Wow. And do you still test people for COVID or do you just assume they have it? We do test only the people that we are admitting to the hospital. But by now, I think it's just for uh, epidemiological uh, reasons because uh, they all have the same clinical pattern. So I do not need the test uh, to understand that that patient is COVID positive. Uh, they all have bilateral pneumonia. They're hypoxic, hypocapnic, uh, with uh, LVH elevated. So they're all they they really are all the same. And when you get those patients, as far as treatment goes, besides respiratory and ventilatory support, are you using anything else? Do you still prophylax with antibiotics for pneumonia, or are you just assuming this is COVID and there is no treatment? No, we start antibiotic on, on almost all of these patients uh, while evaluate, evaluating them and while starting uh, the test. And uh, if they have a severe respiratory failure, we start hydroxychloroquine and antivirals. Which antiviral are you using now? Do you know? Uh, it depends on, on what we have. Uh, we started with uh, lopinavir, uh, and then we moved uh, to, I don't remember the name, uh, it, it's like darunavir. And so this is kind of the, the routine, they get antibiotic, they get antiviral, and they get hydroxychloroquine? Uh, antiviral and hydroxychloroquine, only if they are in severe respiratory failure. Uh, in that case, uh, we start this therapy waiting for the results of the test. And what about ventilatory support? So there's been a lot of discussion, at least on the state side, with uh, non-invasive ventil ventilatory support, uh, intubation, uh, protecting the staff, perhaps preferring intubation over the non-invasive modalities. Is that even a thought for you? We do not have the resource uh, to... Uh, intubate uh, all of these patients uh, you have to imagine to have uh, like uh, 20 patients every day, every day coming in a respiratory respiratory distress and needing an ICU bag for at least 10 days each patient so we start all of them on non-invasive ventilation uh, or well mostly on helmet CPAP 
Uh, and I have to say that uh, it works very well in most of the patients uh, to temporize, to, to get some time uh, to find an ICU bed. Uh, I'll say that uh, mild and moderate ARDS uh, do well with helmet SIPA, at least for the first days, uh, while severe uh, ARDS ob obviously are not going so well. But uh, it helps to buy some time to, to get an ICU bed. And uh, speaking about the uh, aerosolization of the virus, uh, we do put uh, viral filters uh, before the PEEP valve on the helmets so that the virus is not spreading around. And the same for non-invasive ventilation. Uh, we use uh, viral filters uh, attached to the masks of patients. Uh, and since the leaks uh, are very low with uh, oronasal uh, masks, uh, the spreading of, of the virus uh, is uh, really, really low. We, we always use, however, uh, FFP2 masks, uh, which I think it's the same as yours, uh, N95 masks, uh, when we approach these patients. And are you maintaining them on the airborne category of isolation once they're on this ventilation support? Uh, when they go in hospital, are they uh, on airborne isolation or droplet isolation, or is there a difference in, in your center? Well, uh, the problem is that uh, in my emergency department, we only have one isolation room with negative pressure ventilation. Uh, so uh, we used it for the first cases. Uh, by now, of course, uh, uh, we had more than 100 patients at the time inside the, inside the emergency department. So uh, it, it would be impossible to isolate all of them. So uh, uh, we keep a dirt area of the emergency department that is now about 90% of the emergency department. Wow. We, dress, we dress up before entering that area. And they and then we stay dressed dressed up with uh, this mask all day long, well all shift long. And as you go from one patient room to the next, is it just you're changing gloves, or do you have to change gown, or you just hand sanitize the gloves? We do we do not have rooms uh, like uh, we have created a, a big uh, non-invasive ventilation room with all the patients inside. I just uh, change my gloves, uh, and that's it. We don't uh, we don't have enough uh, gowns to change ourselves uh, many times a day, so we just change the gloves. So when you dress to enter this area, you're wearing your you call it an FFP mask, and then yeah. your your gown, your gloves, anything else, shoe covers or head cover or everything, shoe covers, head covers, and glasses and glasses. Okay. Yeah. And when uh, when you started all of this, I mean, presumably you didn't have a dirty area of your emergency department in the beginning as volume started to increase uh, and there was a delay in getting people out of the emergency department. You had to start holding or containing some of these people. Uh, is that when you finally flipped the switch to create this dirty area or, or hot zone in your emergency department? Uh, 
I think uh, we created a, a dirty flow very early. Uh, so knowing that there was people coming back from China, we already created the, the dirty flow who was using, uh, that was using the isolation room. When numbers increased, uh, we dedicated uh, one room and one waiting room to the dirty flow. And then uh, we, we increased the space taken by, by the dirty flow uh, day by day until reaching 90% of the ED. And the waiting room you mentioned, that's also segregated, so dirty and clean. As people are coming in, they're being screened to one waiting room or the other? Uh, now they are screened in the triage area uh, where they arrived, and they are divided there in the clean and dirty area. Just so people have a frame of reference, do you know the annual volume at your ER or even just the daily volumes? It's about uh, 100 patients, 100,000 patients per year. I think it, it takes in, into account everything. So OBGYN, ortho, pizza, uh, ophthalmology. Uh, if you take into account only uh, adult patients, uh, taking off all these OBGYN, ortho, uh, I think it's about uh, 60,000 patients per year. And by now, uh, and we serve uh, a population of about uh, 1 million people. We are the biggest hospital. To, uh, and our hospital is uh, about uh, 880 beds hospital. And how many spaces in the department, in the emergency department? We, we have a lot of spaces. Uh, it, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, it is, uh, it's pretty new uh, as a hospital. They built it up uh, in, um, I think, the first year or so of, this, uh, of 2000. Uh, so it's, it's pretty new. It, and we have a lot of spaces. Um, and it's, by now, we, we have a, about 80 COVID patients coming every day. You said most of them, like 80 or 90%, are being admitted to the hospital? Yeah, that's the problem. And are all of them actually making it out of the ER by the end of the day, or you still have some that are holding? No. I, uh, I think on the first days of March, uh, we have a ward, uh, uh, in, in, like an acute med medicine ward that is uh, attached to the emergency department. We closed the ward in order to put there uh, patients waiting for admission. So we created 21, 21 beds for patients waiting for admission. But of course, they're never, they're never enough. Uh, we are transferring out many patients, trying to use uh, uh, nursing home resi residencies and uh, rehabilitations for uh, lower acuity patients. Uh, and, but uh, it, it's uh, a continuous uh, reorganizations, reorganization of the flows inside the emergency department, inside the hospital, and within the region. And as you transfer them out of the hospital to these other locations, if they're less sick, uh, they will take, obviously, COVID-infected patients. Do they 
do they congregate, you know, like a convalescence yeah. home will take all COVID patients and they'll keep trying to keep them together? Yeah, this is what is happening. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, let's go back now and talk about the staff. So you mentioned in the very early days you had a fever. Do you know, have you actually had the infection? Uh, well, actually, uh, I got tested uh, because uh, it was just the early epidemic. I got tested that I was negative and I came back to work. Uh, we now know that uh, the sensitivity of the test uh, is uh, 60 to 70 percent so i still think that i got covid however uh last week uh, i got fevers uh again so i i had to stay home but we do not test us anymore now uh for two reasons the first one is that uh, we cannot afford to stay home for 14 days uh in bergamo uh, and uh, the second reason is that uh, I, I think uh, we all got some uh, mild symptoms uh, in the last weeks and we continued to go back to work. So uh, uh, it would be strange now to change things. Uh, we, should, we should test all of us, but we don't have enough resources to test all the sanitary personnel. So what we do uh, is just to wait to get to get better, wait seven days, and then go back to work. And do you start the seven days from the day the fever starts? No, from the day you get uh, uh, you recover. Ah, I see. So you have to wait the fever to go away, wait seven days, and then go back. And then go back. Okay. Our protocol would be to test before going back to work. Uh, but by now, we cannot afford it. Yeah, because there's not enough staff left. You mean yeah. you, can't, you can't afford to have the staff not come back to work? Exactly. Uh, maybe things are changing because uh, in these days, uh, military doctors are coming to help in our hospital. Uh, so maybe things will change. But by now, by now, this is the actual situation. Throughout the last few weeks, what in your update that you helped us uh, create for EB Medicine, you said count on about 10% of your staff being sick at any given point. Do you think that that was the worst of it, is you had about 10% of your staff gone? Was it ever like 50% or something of that sort? Well, this is the strange thing. Uh, the rate is very low in our emergency department. While uh, inside the hospital, the rates are much higher. Uh, this is why I think that probably we got ill in the last weeks before the, the epidemic starts and we didn't think it was COVID, so we continued to work. Uh, because it's really strange that only 10% of us got ill since the start of the epidemic. While in other uh, wards, uh, they got like uh, 40 to 50% wow. rates. And they, don't see, they do not see a COVID patient. Wow. So they, they got ill like outside the hospital probably, or inside the hospital with not non-suspected patients. And when they 
the the non-ED staff gets sick, you said up to 40% of them might be gone. Do they just shut down that much capacity in the hospital or how are they handling that? But by now, all the elective activity has been stopped in our, in our uh, uh, hospital in order to treat COVID patients. Uh, so they, like surgeons, do not operate anymore. They treat COVID patients uh, as a fact. Okay, so tell me more about that. These are surgeons like your uh, general surgeons, thoracic surgeons, I mean, your orthopedic surgeons, they're helping treat COVID patients? Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, inside the ward, not in the emergency department. Uh, we have only one internal medicine ward and one uh, uh, pneumologic ward. Uh, and of course, 480 patients are more than what they could uh, uh, have in that wards. So uh, we created a lot of new wards uh, and put any doctor to follow these patients. Uh, they started to do some courses on helmet CPAP, how to put it on and how to follow the, these patients. Uh, and they follow all these patients in the wards. We are doing helmet CPAP in almost all of the hospital. Wow. But have you run out of helmet CPAP? Uh, not really, because uh, uh, my chief uh, is an expert in uh, non-invasive ventilation. So we had a lot of helmets. Uh, we had some problems in uh, CPAP devices, like the device to generate the flow needing for helmet CPAP. Uh, but I don't know how he found a way to get a lot of them. So by now, uh, I never had a problem uh, treating a patient with helmet CPAP. That's good. That's, that's a blessing. Yeah. yeah. And when, uh, so currently the flow for staff in the ER or outside the ER is if they get sick, they go home. And then seven days after the fever is gone, they're allowed to return to work. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, also in the updates you sent us, you mentioned something about ultrasound. So you're using that now in your, your protocols. Tell me, tell me how that fits into your examination of a patient. Yeah. We use ultrasound a lot uh, uh, every day. In this epidemic, we had to change our way of using it because uh, uh, there's no time uh, to do something useless. Uh, so uh, I usually ultrasound every patient coming to the emergency department, but now I, I had to stop. And I think it's very useful uh, in the patients that you want to send home because uh, for critically ill patients, uh, I just give a look uh, that they do not have pneumothorax. So I, I, I just look for contraindications uh, to non-invasive ventilation. And then I started. Uh, I don't need to make the diagnosis with uh, lung ultrasound because uh, I know they have COVID infe infection as uh, soon as I see them. Uh, I then use ultrasound to follow them to... Uh, to see if they develop pneumothorax 
Uh, and if I have time to stratify them and to understand if they will respond to CPAP or not. Uh, but I think the, the, it is most useful in the patients coming with fever and cough uh, with an oxygen saturation that is normal and you want to send home because chest X-ray uh, has a very low sensitivity. So if you do not want to CT scan all of these people, you can just ultrasound them. If ultrasound is negative, uh, the, the probability of them to have uh, COVID pneumonia is very low. So uh, what we do is uh, we see these patients, we do chest X-ray and labs, we do lung ultrasound, and then if everything is okay, we just have them walk with a pulse oximetry on uh, their fingers and check if they do, do if they do not desaturate while walking. We send them home. And what's their cutoff for desaturation while walking? Ninety percent? No, uh, it's uh, three points less than uh, oxygen saturation on resting. Ah. And if they're dyspneic while they're walking, but their oxygen saturation is okay, still home. Yeah. By now, yeah. Well, of course, when the epidemic started, uh, it was not like this. Like, uh, I would have not sent anyone this dyspneic uh, uh, while walking home. Uh, but by now, we keep only patients uh, who desaturate. So normal vitals, unremarkable labs, normal chest X-ray, pulmonary ultrasound that's normal, and then you ambulate them if their oxygen saturation does not drop by more than three points, then they can go home. Yeah. If they have positive lung ultrasound or positive chest X-ray, but they do not desaturate, we are starting a protocol um, by which uh, we give them a, a pulse oximetry uh, uh, device and we send them home with it and we teach them how to do a walking test every day uh, and to look for the saturation and in case of the saturation to come back. And have you run out of those devices? Do you have enough to give people? Uh, you have to understand that we see 80 patients a day and we send home about, I don't know, uh, 10 patients a day by now. So we don't need so, much, so many devices. This is also because uh, the EMS uh, uh, is, not is not bringing to the emergency department people with a saturation, oxygen saturation over 90. They're just leaving them at home? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the EMS is performing kind of a field screen in that scenario. If they're saying your saturation is above 90% and you're not in distress, you're going to stay home. We're not going to transport you to the hospital. Exactly. Yeah. And when you say the, the walking test, so how far do you have them walk? Is this 30 meters, 30 meters and just a normal rate? No, no, brisk no, uh, they, no, no, they, they have to walk as fast as they can without running without running. Okay. I like it. Um, so then you mentioned EMS. Um, now this is, this is the screen that you're giving all patients or is this the screen just for the elderly? And if they're younger, then 
you know, is it or is this the screen for all all comers? It's for all patients. All patients. Okay. And if they do drop their pulse oximetry when they're walking, uh, then then you're admitting them for observation and just oxygen therapy at that point, plus yeah. minus anything else. Okay. So, yeah. And when you do your lung ultrasound, what are you looking for? I'm looking mostly for B lines and small uh, like pleural abnormalities. Uh, this is what, what I'm looking for in this kind of patients. While in uh, severely uh, ill patients, like patients with ARDS, I'm looking also for consolidation because uh, we have seen that uh, when you see consolidation uh, early, uh, they are less responsive to CPAP and non-invasive ventilation. While when you see an interstitial pattern, uh, they usually do respond pretty well to PEEP. And if you do see consolidation, are you going to just skip the non-invasive and, and try and find them a ventilator and intubate early, or you still go through that step, series of steps? We, we, cannot, we cannot afford uh, to intubate these patients. So we, uh, unless they're about to die, uh, we start them on non-invasive ventilation anyway. We, we, we try. Because her uh, lung ultrasound uh, is not proven to, to be uh, uh, good to, to choose which patient is PEEP responsive. So uh, we try anyway to, to, give, to give some PEEP and then we decide. So you're using it more as a tool to guide disposition home or need to stay. And then once you know they need to stay, you're screening with ultrasound just to track their clinical progress. And there are some suggestions that if they're developing more focal infiltrates that perhaps this patient is not gonna do as well uh, than the next person who just has interstitial changes on ultrasound. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing is uh, pneumothorax because uh, you can imagine that uh, putting helmet CPAP with uh, 20 centimeters of water of PEEP on hundreds of patients uh, will lead to uh, many pneumothorax. Uh, so you have to expect it and to have uh, uh, devices to treat them in the emergency department, of course. Are you using a lot of uh, pigtail catheters and, and smaller, smaller tubes for those kinds of pneumothoraces? If they need to be ventilated, uh, they need bigger tubes. How big are you uh, using? 24, okay. at least. Yeah. Is that because the reaccumulation rate is too high for a small tube to handle? Yeah, uh, that's what we fear. Uh, I see. So you have lots of patients in your area that have chest tubes and a CPAP mask and helmet. Uh, or yeah, helmet. Fortunately, people having chest tubes uh, are just a few in our area. Maybe it happens in the world. Uh, by now, it happened uh, to me just two times. And uh, one time uh, we had to treat the patient, while the other time, uh, he was uh, at ceiling therapy with CPAP. Uh, we, we were deciding if stopping CPAP and the pneumothorax made us stop it. Mm. And when you stopped CPAP therapy, what then? 
uh, like uh, we gave him norbuthermas, mm-hmm. morphine, and he died. He died. Okay, so that was yeah. more of a withdrawal of care at that point. Yeah, we were th- deciding about withdrawing CPAP. Mm-hmm. I we probably would have uh, continued it uh, if he wasn't if he hadn't developed in that pneumothorax, but it was. Uh, something that told us uh, that uh, we couldn't go on. And so are you seeing uh, patients with pneumothorax and CPAP on the wards as well? Or does the pneumothorax mean they have to now be in intensive care? Or are there even any spaces in intensive care? Is that just reserved for intubated patients? Uh, ICU is reserved for intubated patients. So all floor nurses really have to become comfortable with dealing with chest tubes and the non-invasive CPAP ventilation. Yeah, that's it. Uh, it's a problem. When we talk about uh, the staff again, uh, you know, there's been a little bit of information about uh, pregnancies and whether or not pregnancy puts you at higher risk or there's any risk to uh, the fetus in that scenario. Uh, I don't know if you've had the chance to treat any pregnant patients or had any pregnant staff members. Um, any any experience there? Uh, not real. Like uh, fortunately, we do not have any pregnant staff now working during the epidemic, uh, and I haven't seen any pregnant patients. Uh, but I have to say that in our emergency department, uh, pregnant patients are followed by uh, OBGYN unless they are critically ill. Uh, so we didn't see any critically ill uh, pregnant patients. Uh, maybe there are many uh, not critically ill. What about uh, children? Do you, you, have you seen any critically ill pediatric cases? No, no. Uh, it's the same. We see only critically ill uh, children. Otherwise, they are seen by pediatricians. And uh, and I haven't seen uh, a young a, a children any children during the epidemic. Good. Do you know if your pediatric colleagues are still uh, having to deal with uh, an increase in the number of peds cases being admitted just for hypoxia? You know, even if it's only temporary. Do you know any of that? Uh, I know they had many cases, but I don't know the numbers. When you test, you said you test patients who are being admitted. So is that test now occurring in-house or is it still sent to a government lab? No, no, it's in-house now. It takes uh, uh, about, mm, I think, eight to ten hours. And are you having to retest patients at any point? I mean, if their initial test is negative, do you even bother with another one? Uh, That's the problem. Like, uh, we do not bother because we admit them. we usually test again uh, in uh, two or three days if they are negative and we know that they have COVID. One of the other things you mentioned uh, was preparing some psychological support for your staff. Uh, what, yeah. have you, what have you guys done in that arena that's been helpful? Uh, we, we can have psychological support. We have a number we can call to organize a meeting uh, and they are there for us uh, every day. Um, I, I think it's important because uh, you have to imagine that uh, from one day uh, to another, you cannot meet any any people 
outside the hospital because uh, of the containment measures. So you only go from your home to the hospital and then go back to your home. And inside the hospital, you always wear masks and, and uh, gowns. Uh, and, and you fight every day uh, with a lot of people needing to be treated and uh, suffering and waiting for admissions uh, uh, without uh, enough beds. So the stress uh, is very, very, very high. Wow. Well, that, that's a very sobering thought, really. So, so the isolation there is actually making things even worse because you, you're not only quarantined outside the hospital, but then even inside the hospital with masks and gowns and hot zones, uh, you've got more isolation keeping you away from your colleagues even. Uh, and then you're just surrounded by massive demand with very few resources. That sounds like a very terrible scenario. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> We have a lot of uh, uh, WhatsApp uh, chats uh, to help us, even though uh, this is uh, also a problem because you, you get out of the hospital and you start to read and write messages on the phone mm -hmm. and you continue to think about what is happening and to think what you can do better, uh, what can be improved. That is very good for the system. But it's hard because you never stop thinking about uh, these patients and about the epidemic. Wow. Well, listen, our thoughts and prayers will be with you and your colleagues uh, and, uh, and all of you in the hospitals there. Um, you know, fortunately, our, uh, our level of epidemic has not reached uh, the experience you've had uh, yet. I think the, uh, the hope is that some form of social isolation might try to uh, reduce the number of patients coming to the hospital at any given time and hopefully stretch the outbreak here in the U.S. over a longer period of time and not exhaust the resources. Uh, but time will tell if that's successful. Um, in the meantime, I'll ask one last question. Is there anything else you wish you knew at the start of this that you know now that you think you would have found helpful? Uh, I would have liked uh, to know uh, that the rates of patients needing ventilation were so high. Uh, we were lucky because uh, the epidemic here uh, hit Lodi, which is uh, uh, a town near Milan, before Bergamo, just a few days before Bergamo. So they told us that a lot of patients needing ventilation uh, would come. And we had some time to prepare, but it was not enough. Like, uh, if, if we knew, we would have changed all the organization of the health system in all of the region, like dedicating uh, hospitals to see only COVID patients and hospitals to clean patients. Uh, this is what they are trying to do in Milan. And uh, I think that uh, uh, preparation, preparedness uh, is uh, the key to manage the epidemic. Without having time to prepare, uh, it's really hard. Because the numbers, we have never seen uh, so many critically ill patients together. 
like the other patients, I, I think uh, it's bad, but they can uh, wait for uh, a bed. We can find some, find some hot oxygen for them. Uh, the problem is for critically ill patients that need the resources uh, soon. So uh, you have to prepare this, uh, this kind of resources. Wow. Well, thank you again. You're welcome. Uh, it really is quite sobering. And, uh, and I really appreciate you being a resource for us. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. It's a sobering discussion about the Italian experience with COVID-19 and something that is likely to be in our future here in the U.S. in some form or another. Thanks again for listening in to this special episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Until next time, stay safe.